this is a QR code. If you have a smartphone, you get an app, like a QR reader. You just scan it, and instead of having to go in the back and, like, you know, run the gauntlet of people picking up their kids and kids' phone and all that, you just scan it and sign up while you're sitting in service. When I get to the boring bits, there are no boring bits. Just important bits. Have you heard me tell me my story about the, uh, the gopher I've been battling? Right? And you're like, I don't care about your gopher. Okay, you're going to get my gopher story. So, uh, I, I've been battling this gopher. Every time I turn around, I got it's like digging up in my yard, like mounds like this. I mean, I don't understand how a creature like this big can make a mound this big. So, I've been trying to kill this thing forever. Well, last week, ended up in my house. I got a big dog. Okay, so my dog, and I'm like, what is Haiti? My dog's name is Haiti. What's, what's she doing? She's like, like over the, I'm like, what the, what's that dog doing? I turn around, and she's got like, so first of all, it was a mouse. You know, it's all rainy and like filled my splinter and into your house. And see, seriously, uh, what, what did Jim Gaffigan say? If nature is so wonderful, why are the animals always trying to get into my house? Right? Okay. And so she's doing this whole thing, and I'm like, what's she, and so I go over there, and she's like totally freaking out, and bam, gopher, in the house. In the house. So, you know, after my wife, I do a whole lot of, ah, you know, kind of thing. I, I kind of catch it. And I, and I put it in this, this old pickle jar, because I don't like sheets, pickles, so it's in this little pickle jar. And I put it in there. I was going to take it down to the extermination company on Monday to see if it was a gopher or what it actually was. It was a gopher. It had hands, like, you know, because mice don't have hands to, like, gophers, because they got to dig. <laughs> My science works well. Okay. So, and so it had hands, so I know it's a gopher. And so it's not on the front step of my house, and I put it in there, and, my, and I totally forgot about it, and, and now it's dead. <laughs> Which is what I was going to do anyway. I mean, seriously, a lot of people are like, oh, that's so sad. Really? Want me to drop it off in your yard? No, you don't. You want me to kill it. If you want to see it, it's right in front of my house in the big pickle jar. You can just come by. Yeah. My dog is very excited about it, by the way. So, oh, oh, it's still here. <laughs> I'm so excited. <laughs> Welcome to Element. <laughs> If you are new, sorry. Uh, there are Bibles in the back. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes on all the communion tables around the room. If you do have a smartphone as well, you can download an app. It's called Uversion. You click on Live inside of Uversion. It will bring us up by GPS in your smartphone, and you'll get all the sermon notes and the verses and all that stuff as well. Again, can't wait for Ryan to be back next week because I didn't realize how hard it is to do music and preach their services. I know, you're like, baby. It is. I am just a baby. I really am. Why don't you guys stand me to read into God's Word? <clears throat> this is James chapter 4, verse 6. It says, But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would teach us as a people how to be humble, to understand the great grace that you have bestowed upon us, and that the lives that we have and the things that come into them are given from and through you. And we would live lives that better reflect your great glory. Amen. Have a seat. So i got lots to cover today. Open your Bible to Genesis chapter 4. Uh, I, got a, I, I had a really hard time putting this whole thing together because we're actually going to do a chapter and a half today. I know, it's like week 13, we're barely hitting the back end of chapter 4, and then all of a sudden we just fell off a cliff and we're doing like a chapter and a half today. I'm trying to pull it all together and make it make sense to you, so I'm going to do my best. We're going to come back to this idea of grace over and over throughout uh, this message. And I, apparently I've been told I was talking really fast. I normally talk fast, but apparently I'm talking really fast today, so... I'll just slow down. You're the last service. You don't want to get out here until like three. My goodness, you are just as bad a crowd as last service. That's all I'm saying. To start. 
So far in Genesis, we have seen that God created everything good. He places man in his good creation. He gives mankind the wonderful grace to be able to partner with him in creating a God-centered culture. God instructs man that he is totally free to do anything in the world that he wants in this garden except for one thing, and that is to disobey God. Because that would mean death. It would bring sin. Sin brings death. God is life. Man, because he's so brilliant, or thinks he is, does the one thing that God tells him not to, like we all do, so we can't just blame him, and tumbles into sin. After this, what you see, the serpent is then cursed. Adam and Eve uh, receive some judgment and some promises. And one of those promises is that God is going to send a redeemer. Jesus is going to come and bring salvation to his people. So Adam and Eve fast forward a little bit. They have their first kids, Cain and Abel. Cain is the firstborn son. And they think, oh, well, God just gave our very first son to be this savior of the world. They think he's Jesus. But then that son, Cain, murders their second son, Abel. And they realize, oh, I guess he isn't Jesus because he murdered our other kid. They put all their eggs into this Cain basket. Not a good idea. Cain leaves, starts another family, builds a city, and then it all goes downhill from there. And that's essentially where you leave Cain's line until you hit chapter 6 a little bit. But what it does tell you is that God does not forget anybody. God cares for the forgotten. No one is ever forgotten by God. Chapter 4, verse 25 is where we pick this back up, where you leave off with Adam and Eve. And again, we'll cover 1,600 years of Bible history in one and a half chapters today. So chapter 4, verse 25. Here we go. Adam knew his wife again. Now, it's not like Adam lost her or didn't know where she went or something like that. This is a euphemism for, for sexuality. Like, he knew her Biblically, if you know what I mean. Okay, yes. All right. Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel. Poor Cain killed him. Now, originally, when they first had Abel, they kind of dismissed him. He's like an afterthought. I mean, his name literally means breath or nothingness. And so it's like, you know, Abel's this afterthought. Now she has a little bit of change in her tone. I mean, originally, when she first gives birth to Cain, she's like, I've spawned the Savior of the world, which is how most moms feel when you have a baby. It's like, I have spawned the Savior of the world. Then they hit two, and you're like, I have spawn the offspring of Satan, right? Because it just goes the other direction altogether. What Eve does now in the scriptures is she humbly receives the child as a gift from God. What you see is Eve is finally learning. Adam learned after the fall. He, he says, God, I'm going to take care of this woman that you have placed in my life again. And so he does that. He promises God to do that. Cain, after God seeks him out, Cain's heart changes a little bit. God is patient with Adam and with Cain and with Eve. Now, Seth's name, his name can mean a lot of things, but in its roots, it has this idea of foundation, what Genesis is doing now is it's setting up a new line through which men will come through. In the Talmud, in Genesis Rabbah, 2029, it says, with him, that Seth, the world was founded anew. Okay, so Seth uh, keeps going. To Seth also a son was born, and his name is called Enosh. He called his name Enosh. So what you see is the humbleness that was originally given to Adam and Eve that they got after all their sin, they now pass on to their son Seth. And you know that because he named his son Enosh. Enosh means man, but an emphasis on the frailty of man, that we are nothing without God. And then it says, at that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. So when everything is going wrong, at that time, men began calling on God. Calling on God is our understanding, the basic beginning of our understanding of prayer. It is always done in the, in the understanding of our own frailty and the full awareness of our dependence upon God. Genesis 4, as you get to the end of this, you see there's been technology and music in and, and the rural area of Eden, the metropolis of Nod. There's been the chauvinism of Lamech. There's been the feminism of Eve and the slaughtering of people who have hurt us. And in all of those things, they found no hope. 
And God comes and he restores hope and he promises this Redeemer. Uh, we, they realize nothing works apart from God and his great grace to his people and his work in us. So chapter 5 essentially resets like your computer all locks up and you've got to restart it. That's chapter 5, verse 1. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. You have to understand at the beginning of this here again that Genesis is a Hebrew work. There are ten generations now that will separate Adam from Noah. When Moses wrote this, chapter 5 is probably a well-known record of a genealogy that, that people knew, and he places it in Genesis for a theological purpose. The point of the scriptures is for you and I to be able to know God better as he has revealed himself. It is This whole chapter 5 is not meant to be a concept comprehensive history. It is a highly selective presentation to move us along to theological purposes. And again, what that is, is helps us to understand God better. Get you from Adam to Noah while helping us to see God's great grace, that we're to be a blessing to those around us and to be fruitful and multiply. You will now also see in chapter 5, people live some very, 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 very long lives. Okay, This could be literal. It also could be metaphorical. To this day, no one knows what the meaning of these long ages were. Tons of speculation, but one thing we do know for sure is that there's no way you can date the history of the world based upon Genesis because that is not the point of Genesis. All right? Trying to come up with all these dates, that's what Western people do. This is a Hebrew document, so we don't come at it trying to be all Westernized with it. You must understand that these have theological purposes to them. I mean, there are tons of speculation about these ages. But ancient Jews, as an example, didn't even celebrate birthdays the way that we celebrate birthdays today that they had a totally different focus. The strongest factor in them not celebrating birthdays was, was that their children from a young age were supposed to realize that everything comes from the hand of God, that life doesn't revolve around them. And a major role in parenting was to teach their children to forget about and let go of all their self-centeredness and remember God. Because in remembering God, the Hebrews found purpose and grace, and then life once again has great meaning and becomes meaningful for them in everything that they do. I mean, think about it. If you look at our culture today, how has anyone been bettered by telling them to focus on themselves? Anybody. Nobody's bettered by that. No, because we realize when people start saying, oh, you need better self-esteem. Oh, you focus more on yourself. We look at ourselves and realize we're terrible. And the more we focus on ourselves, like, well, well, this is just depressing. That's exactly the point. When we focus on ourselves, we become angrier, less sure of ourselves. We become over-medicated. We realize we're under-loved. It, what it does is it makes us embrace all the fallenness of our lives without ever giving us hope of redemption that we can change. And this is the point of the gospel. We focus on Jesus and not upon ourselves. We have forgotten all the things that we should have remembered, that every day is a special day, not just the ones that pertain to us, because every day comes from the hand of God. Every moment is a gift. Every moment is not about us. Every moment is about Him. Genesis 4 ends in humbleness. Genesis 5 starts in humbleness. By the time you get to Genesis chapter 6, it all reverts back to the way it was before. This is the progression of sin. We totally mess up. Oh, God, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. And then all of a sudden, we, we get a little bit farther, weeks or months away, and we start falling back to right where we were before. That's the progression of sin. And God says it does not always have to be that way. Chapter 5, verse 1 again. This is the book of the generations of Adam. Literally, this is the record of Adam's line. Many scientific theories all agree now that we come from a single ancestry. Okay, where Christians also believe that, but we believe we're also marred by sin. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. That is Genesis 1. Male and female, he created them and blessed them. That's Genesis 1 and 2. God blesses, we sin. We get good from God, we get bad from us. And name them man when they were created, or literally mankind. 
kind. God names us. I told you before, when Adam names his wife Eve, it's because he's promising to take care of her, to watch out for her. And so now God promises he's taking care of mankind. Eventually he does this to sending his son, Jesus. Culture was supposed to be founded on these godly men. Unfortunately, even when culture is founded on some godly guys, other people come along and they run the wrong way with it and resembles little of what founded it, kind of like our country today a little bit, maybe this political process we all go through. But Genesis 5 is supposed to start this new line to trace the family through men who would love God and worship him first and then lead and love their families. So I'm going to pronounce some of these names, probably butcher them. It's okay, you won't name your kid this, so we're, we're fine. Genesis 5, verse 3. When Adam had lived 130 years, he followed a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. See, now you're all like, well, oh, whew, the human race is going to continue. I'm so happy now. I see that. Maybe not. Okay. The days, <laughs> the days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days that Adam lived were 930 years. And here's an important line. And he what? Died. You know the Bible, it says died. And he died. That's the pattern now. That death. They walked away from God wanting to do things on their own, and they died. It's all very encouraging. Uh, when Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Seth, 912 years, and he died. Now, I want to point something else out to you in this as well. It's not that he lived 105 years and then finally had a kid. There are probably lots of other kids in here. They're just picking certain people out for theological purposes of this line. Verse 9, when Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Kenan. Enosh lived after he fathered Kenan 815 years, had their sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. When Kenan had lived 70 years, he fathered Mahalalel, because he stuttered. Kenan lived after he fathered Mahalalel 840 years, had their sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Kenan were 910 years, and he died. When Mahalalel had lived 65 years, he fathered Jared, because he said, I'm not going to do that to my kid. Mahalalel lived after he fathered Jared 830 years and other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Mahalel were 895 years and he died. When Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years and other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Jared were 962 years and he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Now, Methuselah lives longer than anybody else in the scriptures. This guy just goes on forever and he's fathered by the guy with the shortest lifespan. Uh, Methuselah's death actually corresponds with the timing of the flood. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Kind of feel like you're reading the phone book, right? It's like totally boring, like all these names, right? That's human life. It's, it's like that. Only once did the pattern break. Verse 23, thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God and he was not for God took him. Enoch walked with God. This is important because it's the only place in Genesis 5 where it stops to tell you not just that somebody lived, but how they lived. Enoch walked with God. The theme of the scripture is walking with God. God's will, not ours. Genesis 5 is live, die, live, die, live, die, live, die. Then Enoch, it's different. He's different. And he was not for God took him. This can mean Enoch actually dies in a young age. I mean, well, I mean in comparison, right? 365 years old, it's still the soccer coach. You don't want a ball to hit because boom, you might just, right? Okay, or maybe you like to kick balls at old people, whatever. Okay, it, it tells you God took him. It, took, it tells you that God took him. So if he, if, it was, if he did die at a relatively young age, it's not because of some punishment for sin. Enoch walked with God. That's the point. This is the same wording when you get to Noah and it says Noah walked with God. That's the same thing. God's people were meant to walk with God. This is the whole idea we talked about last week. Life with God. Walking with Him and who He is in all of our lives. This is God comes walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Life with God. That's the point. Do we walk with God? 
I mean, our lives, is the first person we walk with somebody else, or is it Jesus first? And it should be Jesus first in all things. Enoch was not living his life selfishly. He was not simply doing his own thing. He walks as God originally intended with him. He sticks close to God. He loves God. He appreciates God. He listens to God. I mean, Genesis 5 covers 1,656 years of Bible history, and it says one guy walked with God. And my first thought when I read that is, man, I hope that dude wasn't lonely. I really do. Because sometimes you feel like it is just you and nobody else. I will tell you this. God has not abandoned you. He wants to walk with you. And when it says, for God took him, it can also mean that he didn't die, that God just took him. Mark Driscoll actually says that Enoch hears the theme song from the Jeffersons and he moves on up. I don't know. I don't know if I actually agree with that because the whole theme of the scripture is not getting out of here. It's bringing redemption to the creation and God allowing us to partner with him in it. But the point is live, die, live, die, live, die, walk with God and live. The only way around the curse of sin is to walk with God. And if we want life that is real life, we must walk with God. In the New Testament book of Jude, verses 14 to 16, it says Enoch was a preacher. So he not only walks with God, but he encourages others to do so as well. He keeps saying, walk with God. He is the answer. I mean, that's what we should all be doing. Because he not only lived for God, he spoke about him as well. Verse 25. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lemek. Different Lemek than a couple weeks ago. Methuselah lived after he fathered Lemek 782 years. He had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. Again, another really old soccer coach. Dude, someone likens Lemek to like Dick Clark. He just keeps going on and on and on. It's like 2050 and Dick Clark's still there dropping the ball in New York. Just on and on and on. When Lemek had lived 182 years, he fathered a son, verse 29, and called his name Noah. This gets you from Adam to Noah. Ten generations. Critical turning point in history. What you'll get after Noah is ten generations between Noah and Abraham. Another critical turning point in history. Uh, it says, uh, call his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. This is kind of an arrogant statement, just like when Eve has Cain and says, Hey, this is the first baby. I just gave birth to the Savior of the world. This guy is like, My son's going to be relief to everybody. I guess what he doesn't know is that everybody's going to die, and I guess that means you don't have to work anymore, so it's kind of relief, but... Not, not so much. Lemek lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. This all the days of Lemek were 777 years and he died after Noah. Love this. After Noah was 500 years old. So when he's really good and established, he's just like 500 years. I'm good to go. I think it's time to have some kids. Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. I think it's okay. I think it's funny. All right. So after all this time, God does something brand new. One guy walks with God, and all of a sudden, God decides I'm going to do something brand new again. We know it's a new thing God's going to do because Noah's name is a brand new name. It's not found anywhere else in other biblical sources. It's not found in any extra biblical sources. The name Noah is a brand new name. God's going to do something brand new. So how bad is the world at the time of Noah? How far are things fallen? Well, this is where we get chapter 6, verse 1. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God, so that the daughters of man were attractive. This is pleasant and right. They're made in the right way. Praise God. And they took as their wives any they chose. Now, there's a whole lot of speculation on these verses. And I'm going to tell you, and a lot of these things are taught in churches today, and I am just going to give you the... Well, I'll give you all three views, actually. Some people have really gone all like sci-fi and X-Files where they, you know, where they eat too much MSG and maybe smoke some crack and drop acid, watch Scooby-Doo, and then said, let's make some theology. And so that's kind of where you get some of this really weird stuff. I'm going to sort this out for you as best I can. I will give you, again, the three views. Again, nobody knows really what this author meant. 
All right? And, and that's, that's the point. We come to it. The people who originally read it probably knew exactly what he was talking about. We don't, so we go all crazy and weird. But the saddest thing is, is that as a, as a culture today, we tend to take and try and sensationalize things that aren't sensationalistic, and we try and unsensationalize things that should be. Like we look at Jonah and the well, and we see things like, oh, look, well, look, Jonah and, and, and the big fish. Well, you know, today people have been swallowed by a well, and they've been spit up three days later. We try to take all the really coolness out of it, and we take something like this that's just kind of at face value and make it all crazy. So view number one, give you the craziest one first. They say that the sons of God are fallen angels. All right? uh, the term sons of God is interpreted elsewhere in Old Testament as angels. Uh, Job 1, chapter 6 refers to God's throne room. And it says, now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. But, oh, those, those must be angels. Well, not necessarily, because other places, sons of God actually refers to human beings. Like the book of Psalms, it does that. Now the people come along and say, well, they can't be angels because in the New Testament, Matthew 22.30 says, for in the resurrection they will neither marry nor are given in marriage but are like angels in heaven. Now the people counter back with that and say, no, 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 no. Those are angels in heaven. These are fallen angels. Like somehow when the angel falls, God gives them new anatomy or something. I don't know how that works. The whole purpose and point behind this is if it isn't here for the reason that angels were having sex and marrying people, it would be to combat polytheistic religions of the day who had gods making demigods, where it would be like Hercules or, or Perseus. And so you have these men who are really gods. The narrative tells you no matter what these offspring were they, were, they were only mortal. They were not gods. And they're subject to God's judgment like everybody else. Only God holds the breath of life in his hands, only him. Either way, crazy theory, whatever, the world's getting worse as men rebel against God. The second view is that these are kings or dynastic rulers. They took wives from whomever they pleased, meaning polygamy is then running rampant upon the earth. Just maybe came out of the line of Cain or something like that. So these are, these are earth's rulers before the flood. They're here to minister justice, but instead they're forwarding and multiplying sin. Sons of God can actually be translated as sons of Lords. So they could be made from the Lion of Cain or something like that. Either way, the world's getting worse as men rebel against God. View number three, and I might say the right one, by the way, uh, is that in, in context, because they're supposed to always read the Bible in context. Okay? Context, context, context. Always in what it was written. That these are godly men descended from Seth. Now, you have Genesis chapter 5. comes right out of chapter 4. We, you know, when they write it, Moses was like, uh, chapter 5. da da Chapter 6. That's not what he did. Okay, so it's one on document. We put chapter breaks in it in the 1500s in French. Never mind. You guys don't care. Okay, so we put the chapter breaks in it. So what you have is this whole idea of coming all the way out of end of chapter 4 through chapter 5, beginning of chapter 6. And what, what you also have is you have these guys living these extremely long lives. Right? So you have like Adam. You go into the New Testament and Luke gets from the genealogy back and says, Adam, the son of God. Now imagine, Adam lives 900 years, if the text is correct, right? So there's 900 years, and you have all these people born after him. And so all these people actually know him. That's Adam. That's the son of God. Oh my God, that's Adam. That's Adam's son, Seth. And so this thing kind of just builds on and on and on. I mean, it's like you would know your, your great, 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 great granddad, Mahalalel. You know, hey, that's him. I, I know that guy. And this is the point. So you had these guys, and through this godly line, they were supposed to develop this culture that worshipped God. And essentially what it has in context is you have these men who are supposed to worship God, and you have this line of Cain who are over here worshipping themselves and other people, and they started to mingle together. John Calvin said it was therefore base ingratitude in the posterity of Seth to mingle themselves with the children of Cain. It is not the sons of God are demons and they, and they married girls and had Halloween babies. All right? That's not what it means. Because demons don't get married. 
Seriously, this isn't Hollywood people. <laughs> Jonathan, he goes, he goes, it would make for a better movie. <laughs> Maybe, but that's not what the text says. Matthew 24, 37 and 38. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. View 3 says, these sons of God were the guys you just looked at in context of the passage, the godly line. They took daughters of men, hot chicks that don't know God and didn't even care about Him. Things on earth were so bad that men who loved God married hot girls who didn't even believe. That's what it's telling you. That is something that is wicked according to the Scriptures. It doesn't seem to matter. In our day, it's just like, oh, but they're so hot. Oh, but they're so cute. Oh, it doesn't matter what they believe or what they're doing with their lives. Either way, the world's getting worse as men rebel against God. And God says, I'm sick of it. Verse 3, the Lord said, My spirit, literally my breath, shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh, and his days shall be 120 years. God says these people continue to do evil all the time. I'm not going to leave my breath there. That is scary for a lot of people today, I think. Now, there's two ways to take this 120 years. Number one is that people say, oh, well, man's lifespan is not going to be longer than 120 years. Some Bible interpretations actually say that. that that's not what it means. Because I'll tell you, the Genesis Book World Records today, full of people. All live over 120 years, all right? The second and most biblical in context interpretation of this is that God says you've got 120 years till the flood comes. In 1 Peter 3.20, it says when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. Essentially, God says, flood's coming. Noah, you've got 120 years till I judge everyone. Today, it's kind of the same thing. We get more like 70 or 80 years if you eat green stuff that grows out of the ground. I don't, so I'll be going sooner, but whatever. 2 Peter 2.5 says, Noah was a preacher of righteousness. And so during this 120 years, Noah tries to tell people what's happening, what's going on, how you're supposed to love and worship and follow God, and nobody listens to him except for his three boys. I don't know if they had a choice. You know, there's dad preaching at us again. Repentance is preached by Noah for 120 years, and nobody repents. Chapter 6, verse 4. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Again, people get all weird with this as well. Ooh, the Nephilim. Some of your Bibles may even see giants. We got a little footnote on the bottom that says giants. I have no idea why you have giants in there because the word in Hebrew is Nephilim. That's what it is. We don't know what it means. It doesn't mean giants or Samoans or Wookiees. It doesn't mean any of that stuff, okay? Do you know why most translations trans- say Nephilim? Because that's the Hebrew word there. It's used twice in the scriptures, just twice. It's used here, and then you go over to Numbers 13.33, and God tells his people, you go into the promised land, and, do and, they, and they go in, they go, oh, uh, the Nephilim were there, they're giants, we don't want to do what God told us to do. And they run back and they have this excuse, this legend, of, oh, the Nephilim were there, they're, we're like grasshoppers next to them. And so people go, oh, well, it must mean giants, they're like grasshoppers. No, they're whiny little dudes who don't want to do what God called them to do, and so they come up with something like, oh, we can't go in there because of this. They use the Nephilim as an excuse. We don't know what it means, except what the text tells us, that these offspring were men of renown. It doesn't say giants. It doesn't say demon-possessed. It doesn't say Thor. It doesn't say any of that stuff. It just says men of renown. But that also is not necessarily a good thing. I mean, today, we have, we have men of renown. Charlie Sheen. He's a man of renown, right? He's jacked up a person as you can think, but because he's popular, we put him on TV in front of millions of people knowing he's a crazy drug addict. It's like Amy Winehouse, very sad thing that she died, but we kept supporting her habit by buying her CDs. It's like the lead singer Stone Temple Pilots. The dude's in and out of rehab every other week. It's like CeeLo Green on, on The Voice said, drop an X all the time and being proud of it, and yet people buy his music. It's like Lady Gaga, Robert Downey Jr., and I liked Iron Man. I thought he was a great Iron Man, but it's just like, it's like Brad Pitt. He's hot, okay? I, I, he's hot. 
but he leaves his wife for another woman. This is not a good thing. I mean, it's like Teen Mom on MTV. It's like Entourage. It's like Jersey Shore. It's like the real desperate housewives. Most of them don't know God. They don't walk with God, which is the point, and yet they are making the culture. That is the point. They're the ones that run the culture. In this, it is live, sin, die. Live, sin, die. Live, sin, die. Enoch, walk with God and live. Either way, the world's getting worse. It's been rebel against God. And then you get to Noah. Verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart's heart was only evil continually. Theologians call this total depravity. Our thoughts, our actions, our lives corrupted. Everything stained by sin. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. This in the Hebrew means uncontrollable sobbing. It is God who sheds tears over the sins of his people. We blame everyone else. We try and pawn it off and everybody else around us. But God is the only one who seems to grieve over our sin and the one that cares about it. When we call good things bad and bad things good, he looks at our sin and he's heartbroken. He cares more about our lives than we do. He is an intensely personal God. This is why he calls himself Father. I cannot imagine what it takes for a father to feel this way. Because we're not any better than Noah's day. When people try to say, you know, oh, all gods are the same, no matter what religion you look at, I think that's stupid. Because if you look at the God of the Scriptures, there's no other God that is this good and this loving and who cares for and feels and is involved with the condition of His people and longs to bring them to redemption. Because eventually God does not leave us in our sin. He sends His Son to die and rise for his people. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heaven, for I am sorry that I have made them. And we think, oh, that's so cruel. That's because we're just like them. Question, if someone was only evil to you all the time, wouldn't you want them gone? They came in every time you weren't home and they beat your kids. Or maybe you raised puppies in your front yard and every time you're gone they come and kick your puppy in the head or something every time you're gone. Just something where it's like, man, will they stop? No one stops them. They're just out of control. Eventually you'd be like, I want them gone. God still gives them 120 years. He offers them salvation by sending Noah to preach to them. Now you say, why through Noah? People go, oh, because Noah was righteous. No, he wasn't. In context, the text says only evil all the time. That would include Noah. There is no good guys. There is God, and then there's the rest of us. Verse 8 says this, But Noah found favor. Favor right there is the first occurrence of the Hebrew word for grace in the Scriptures. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. The first thing Noah got was grace. That's God's answer. It is not Cain. It's not Abel. It's not Seth. It's not the Nephilim. Not men of renown. Not Mahalalel. Not that guy. Grace. Verse 9 says, These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Anyone ever watch Sesame Street growing up? Anybody? Okay. So you can teach you how to count, right? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. What comes after eight? Nine. What comes before nine? Eight. So what came first? The grace or his righteousness? The grace. Noah got grace. That's the point. Grace brought the effect that he was righteous, but the cause was grace. Unmerited favor, and now he walks with God. And, you know, and what was Noah like before the grace? We don't know. He could be a pervert downloading porn on the Internet, smacking his wife around. He's a bad dad, stealing from his boss, goes to Hancock, becomes an atheist, you know, talks on his cell phone or texts when he drives, runs people off the road. We don't know. He's just a dude, worthless, ordinary dude. And God gave him grace. Why? Same way he gives it to you and me. Because God himself is good. People say all the time, oh, I wish the God of the Scriptures was fair. No, you don't. If the God of the Scriptures was fair, he would have flooded the earth, killed everybody and said, that's fair, I'm done. But he doesn't. 
God is not fair. He is good. And He is compassionate. And He is loving. This is our God. And this is a pattern for God throughout the Scriptures. After Noah, He goes and He picks a guy named Abraham. And Abraham lives in Babylon, worshiping false gods, and God picks him anyway. You get to a guy named Moses. Moses is a murderer. He picks King David, who becomes an adulterer. You know, he picks Paul, who's a murderer. God picks pathetic servants and offers them grace all the time. How do I know that? Because he picked you. And he picked me. I mean, there is no reason I should be up here getting to talk to you about the gospel other than God has given me grace. That's the only reason. See, real Christians never think they're better than anybody else. We understand that we're all the same, and we have received grace. That's the point. It is why Jesus came, grace. You can be born, live, sin, die. Born, live, sin, die. Born, live, sin, die. Born, live, sin, be born again, and live forever. That's the point of Jesus, and that is good news. God chose Noah because Noah was a scoundrel, and God has a sense of humor. And God chose you. Because you're totally jacked up. And he's got a sense of humor. And this is the, I mean, if you feel simple and lost and life has no meaning, like no one will ever love you, God says, I will give you grace. And you can walk with me forever. That is the point of the gospel. That we are terrible and our God is good. And this morning, there's going to be some deacons and elders in the back. And if you have never surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, today's a great day to do that because you can start to walk with God. We bring us to communion every single week because communion is the place where we break that cracker like Christ's body was broken for us. We dip it in the wine and the grape juice, which represents his blood that was shed for you and I, so we can be this people who simply walk with him. I mean, he's calling us on. And whether, I mean, whether you walk with him for five seconds or 50 years, Communion is all about the grace that God has bestowed upon us. The band's going to come up. Do a couple songs here. And as they do, understand that worship doesn't end when the singing's over. Okay, worship is not just singing. Worship is everything that we do with our lives. And so as you walk out these doors, whatever you, your life is to be lived in worship. Um, there's some offering boxes on the sidewall in the back. We give because God gave so much to us. Giving is simply part of our worship. So we don't pass a plate. It's a response to what he's done. And, I mean, we should respond well because God is so good. And there's some food and stuff in the back. My wife picked up some donut holes. She's saying no. Oh, bummer, you guys. There's coffee. <laughs> Somebody ate all your donut holes. Oh, I'm so furious. You know, bummer. Whatever. Good. Go meet some people. Take them out to lunch. Even better. Then you get to... See, the, the point of the gospel when God saves us is it's not just... I mean, it is, it, he does save us personally. But it's never meant to just be about us. It is God saves us and restores us so we can have restored relationships with those around us as well. So you meet somebody, you get together, you, by, you worship God by actually fellowshipping with other people. And so we try and give you that opportunity every week to do that. Our God is good. And our God brings grace. And that is his answer to everything. Jesus brings grace. Uh, Erickson, come and pray for us. Because we don't want to do the whole awkward guitar thing. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are good. We thank you for your grace, Lord. Without your grace, um, Lord, we're just evil continually. We go our own way. We rebel. We disobey. And we pay the the consequences for that, Lord. Father, I pray that um, this morning, as we examine ourselves, Lord, that you would open our eyes to see our sin for what it is. 
and that you would help us to see your grace for what it is and your love for what it is, Lord, and that you have given us so much, Lord, and you, your life enables us to walk with you and to be different and to change. So I pray, Father, that you would bless us this morning with your grace, that you would show us the areas in our lives that that need to be different, that need to change, and that we would trust you, Lord, and that we would be humble and that we would walk with you every step of the way, Lord. We ask these things in Jesus' name.